0: Hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Deviney. I am the lead pastor of Asbury. We hope this podcast will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and it will be hopefully entertaining as we go along. Now, I should say we're back. We, I, took a, I took a hiatus here for a couple of weeks while I was recovering from Bell's palsy. I just figured it's one less thing to spend my time on. Uh, and in the interest of trying to recover and trying to rest, I just kind of took this off my plate for a little bit. Um, and just, of course, you know, I, I recovered from Bell's palsy and then immediately came down with a cold. So if you hear me sniffing a little bit or if I sound a little congested, uh, that's why. Um, it's not too bad, so I figured I can, I can go ahead and do this. Um, we have spent the last two weeks reading through Uh, It's a reading plan called The Good Life, and it focuses on two of the three books of wisdom literature in the Bible. Uh, The the three books are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, and we just looked at Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and the reason I think that that, uh, Job was left out of that reading plan is that Job really deserves and requires uh, its own focus. It's so dense and so rich, and I've, I've preached on Job Before in the past. Um, I mean, I've preached on all these in the past, but um, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are so interesting to me. Maybe they're interesting to you, but uh, I I have a philosophy degree and I'm still interested in philosophy. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think Christians really need to reclaim is. The wisdom of the Bible, because um, what what happened, not necessarily in the early church, but um, kind of like in the uh, not, but not only in the Middle Ages, but sort of in the couple of centuries leading up to the Middle Ages, is that um, the the church, and in particular the clergy, and and this, weirdly, this happened more in the western side of the church than the eastern side of the church. Um, but it, the church really became enamored with Greek philosophy. And so that's why it's kind of weird that it happened more in the western side than the eastern side. And, and if you want my guess as to why that is, um, I, I suspect it's just because um, when, you, when you look at the eastern church, I think because they were sort of immersed in all of that. They were immersed in that culture. They, they sort of maintained a firmer grasp on a biblical worldview than the Western Church did. Um, and that was true in the Middle Ages, but it, it has especially been true since then, because for most of its history, the Eastern Church has not been the majority religion where they live. Uh, right. Uh, most places where the Eastern Church still exists, you know, we think of the Eastern Orthodox Church and we think of Greece and Russia and Eastern Europe, and that's true. Um, although even there, even there for a large chunk of history, of course, they were oppressed by the communists. Um, but, but actually, you know, the Eastern Church was it spread throughout the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, and of course, in most of those places, they've been the minority religion for a very long time. Um, So in the Western church in particular, we've been really heavily enamored with with Greek philosophy. uh, In particular, the works of Plato. And that has wormed its way into the church. And it's wormed its way out into the secular world. And because we have been so enamored with it, um, without even realizing it, by the way. Without even realizing it. uh, We've lost the ability to spot where this Greek philosophy has led people astray. So let me give you a couple examples. One of the core attributes of the philosophy of Plato is the idea that this world we live in is impure and flawed, dirty, not desirable, but that there is a, a another dimension, a higher place, Everything is perfect, and so we will one day discard the imperfections of this world and live there in purity. That's Plato. It may surprise you to learn that that's not anywhere in the Bible. The Bible calls this world good. God makes it. God calls it good. God calls us good when he makes us. He calls our bodies good. And the great Christian hope, the hope presented by the gospel and reaffirmed throughout the New Testament and exemplified in the, in the final scene of the Bible in Revelation, is not that we will leave this world behind and discard it and go live in this perfect dimension somewhere else. No, 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 no. That's nowhere in the Bible. The hope that we have is that when we die, we will wait with Christ in heaven for the day of the resurrection and that we will be raised back to life given physical bodies, resurrection bodies, much like the ones we have now, but incorruptible and animated by the Holy Spirit, and we will dwell forever with God on this earth, purged of the evil caused by human sin, restored to its original goodness by the presence of God. That's our hope. And it's a much better hope, by the way, because it tells us that even though In the moment we die, we lose everything. It tells us we will get everything we lose back because we will be raised back to new life. If you have lost a loved one, you're going to get them back. If your husband or wife has died, you'll get to hold their hand again. You'll hear their voice again. You will feel their touch again. That's the Christian worldview, but you can see how the Platonic worldview has infiltrated Christian beliefs. Another really, uh, maybe even more insidious one is Epicureanism, uh, which is based on the philosophy of Epicurus. And there are two really good examples here that highlight how that Greek philosophy has infiltrated the modern world in ways people don't realize. Um, The first is that Epicurus taught that the gods, if they existed, were distant. They made the world and everything in it. And then they Left it to its own devices, and they're off somewhere else, largely unconcerned with what they're doing. That, of course, is a, was a hugely prevalent worldview amongst the founding fathers of the United States. Something people tend to forget. That's certainly how Thomas Jefferson saw things. But it's still pretty popular today uh, among a lot of people. That that God, if he exists, is somewhere distant, and he's not too concerned with human affairs. But that's Greek philosophy. Um, Another one that shocks a lot of people is Epicurus taught, and this is astounding by the way, he taught that all matter ultimately consisted of tiny particles he called atoms. And that all the matter we see in the universe was, was, it just formed randomly. Those atoms came together randomly to form the things we see around us. And those two concepts, the concepts of these subatomic particles, these tiny little particles making up everything, and the concept of random formation, are in many ways the bedrock of modern science. Now, obviously, we know that there really are atoms and there are even smaller particles. So, you got that part right. But that whole idea of random formation, I mean, you see that not just in um, chemistry and physics. But in biology, right, the whole concept of evolution, that that these mutations happen randomly, all of that is based not in science, not in evidence, but in ancient Greek philosophy. So you can see how these ideas have worn their way into the world, and we have an answer to all of this in the wisdom literature of the Bible. So we really have to reclaim the wisdom of Scripture. So these books, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and also Job, um, these are our philosophy texts, and, and we do well to study them, to ponder them, to think about them, and, and to enjoy them and, and really make them a part of our inner life. Um, Proverbs, of course, is, is the more approachable one because it's very simple um, in a good way. Um, Ecclesiastes is a bit harder because it's a bit more cynical Right, and but in that way, it's more realistic, because Ecclesiastes approaches the world and says, you know, uh, it sure seems like bad things happen to good people. It sure seems like um, you can be righteous and follow God, and things may still not work out for you. And now I, I preach on this on Sunday, so I'm not going to go into too much detail here. But but I think one of the one of the fundamental pieces of wisdom that comes out of both proverbs and ecclesiastes is is the incredible presence of god in everything and not just in our lives but but in creation as a whole there is this clear sense throughout both these books and and in that not just that god is present that god is aware of what's going on in the world but that he is taking an active role and there's there's this this sort of balance where you know God God seems to be unwilling to counteract human free will. He'll let us make our own choices. He will he will let us make mistakes, he will let us go astray, he will let us be destructive. And yet somehow he's also at work in the world. He is working to bring about his purposes. And and so I, I kind of liken this to you know, if you have a small child, they, <laughs> they can make lots of bad choices really fast, right? I mean, and, and you can watch them <laughs> making these really dumb choices. Um, but part of good parenting is letting them make dumb choices, right? Let, letting them uh, actually, ex- and, and letting them experience the consequence of their dumb choices, right? Um... Sometimes it's really mild, and sometimes it's not. But but, I think most parents, especially you know, most good parents, recognize that. You know, you, you have to let your kids make mistakes. Um, most most parents will recognize, especially as your kids get older, you know, when they get into their teen years and even young adult years, that you can't you cannot make decisions for them. They have to make their own decisions, and you can still be there to guide them and correct them and support them and love them, and. And you can hope, you can hope that when they begin to see the foolishness of their ways, they will turn back to your wisdom as the parent and come back and let you guide them. And, and to, But you're still present in their life, right? You're still there to help them. You may still be working to kind of keep them okay behind the scenes. That's, that's a lot like what God is doing in the world, right? Our free will is important to God. God likes, God likes to have us make our own decisions. God likes to let us do things our own way. And he doesn't like to compel people. And yet God is at work in the world, working towards his purposes, working to achieve his goals. But what he wants, what he wants is willing human partners in those goals. And so it may take a bit longer for God to achieve his purposes in the world. But that's just fine by him. So I think that's a core theme that runs through this wisdom literature. Even if it's not explicit in the text, it's implicit by the way that they talk about what God is doing. and, and, And the way that they emphasize the importance and the goodness of being faithful and obedient to God. And the goodness of God's wisdom because all of that rests on the assumption that God is here with us intimately in every square inch of creation and that God is active not just not just that he is guiding us but that he is actively at work in the world working to bring about his purposes so ecclesiastes is a bit more cynical it recognizes that I, I, there's there's difficulty in life in that even if you even if you do everything the way you're supposed to, things may still prove difficult for you. But then it says, yeah, but you know what? If you still fear God and his commandments, that's still a good thing. And, and if you turn back to Proverbs after that, what you find is there are lots of little sayings in there that That goes something along the lines of, you know, um, better to be it's it's better to be poor and starving, but be wise and obedient to God, than to be rich and full and completely ignore His commandments. Um, And so there is a recognition throughout this text, throughout both these books, that um, being obedient to God and being faithful, these are not guarantees of what most people consider to be a high quality of life. And so it calls us to question what a high quality of life actually is. So I'm going to leave you with that. I'm going to leave you with that question. What is a high quality of life? What does it actually look like? Because it does not look like what the world says it looks like. We Christians have to have a different understanding of what a good life is. Back next week with another podcast. Until then, God bless.